You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Morning, we are going to be continuing in our sermon series called King and Crown, which is a series through the book of Mark. Um, and we were talking about the life of Jesus, but also specifically how our culture finds its identity outside of Christ. Um, and so um, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask that you turn with us to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a hard copy of the text but would like to be in one, we do have some Bibles under some of the seats so you can find one around you and grab it. And that way you can turn there with us in the hard copy of the text. Um, so again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning. So when you are there, if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together. <clears throat> and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning to you. I want to welcome you here. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors of the church. And uh, if it's your first time, I want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, like Lauren said, we're going to be continuing our work through the book of Mark, our series through the book of Mark. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I just uh, before I pray, I just we're going to have to do a little bit of work in tandem with last week's sermon because we're in a very familiar passage of uh, the New Testament, the transfiguration story, Jesus going up onto the mountain with Peter and James and John and revealing his glory in this moment. And yet it's our job to work through the book of Mark and see what and why is it oriented where it is, what's the story being told through the pen of Mark, most likely the mouth of Peter as an eyewitness in this story. And so I believe, I'm convinced that chapter 9, 1 through 13 is connected with what Ty worked, uh, worked us through uh, last Sunday morning uh, and that these, uh, this period of time, this seven days or about a week in Jesus' life uh, has a connection. It has a, a linear progression to it. Jesus is teaching his disciples something. And through his disciples, he's teaching us because the message of the transfiguration is not just for the Jews, but it's for the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a cosmic reordering that's happening here. And so needless to say, we've got a lot of work to do. We're going to spend a little bit of time there and hopefully get as quickly as we can to chapter nine. But before we do anything, I'd love to pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that. 
Father, we first come with thanksgiving. Thank you so much for the privilege that we have to sing glory to your name. We thank you, my God, that we have the privilege to submit to your word and that we are not left in the dark, but you have revealed yourself to us and preserved the written word for thousands of years that we might come to the word humbly and with spiritual eyes see you and with spiritual ears hear your voice. And so we ask now, Holy Spirit, would you now meet the needs that we have in this room? Minister to us through the truth of your word. God, many things we come with, burdens and concerns and anxieties, they still plague us even now. And we ask that you would help them to fall away that we might in this next 40 or so minutes hear and receive manna from heaven that we might drink deeply from the fountain of Christ and in so doing be satisfied. We know some of the things that we need, Lord, but we confess to you there are many things that we're just totally unaware of and we ask that you would be our good shepherd now and lead us in the pastures and beside the waters you desire. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So last week began with Jesus going with his disciples into the town of Bethsaida. And there's a miracle that happens there that Jesus lays his hands on a man and heals his blindness. But there's a uniqueness to this miracle in that there's two actions that Jesus has to take before the man has a full miracle before he's fully healed. It says that Jesus lays his hands on him and that he can see now, but when Jesus asks him, he says, I can see, but I see people and they look like tall, wavy trees. Now, for someone who's nearsighted, and I have been since I was a child, this is called an optometrist exam, okay? It's, I can't see the E on the chart, okay? You would look like wavy figures as well. But there's something deeper happening in this miracle. We have to ask the question, you know, is Jesus just like, he needed a warm-up? Like, he kind of like, like false start? Or, you know, is he just not strong enough to do this miracle immediately? No, of course not. We know in the scriptures Jesus is omnipotent and that he constantly is doing things just by the word of his power, okay? He's holding the universe together, the scripture says, by the word of his power. So we have to assume he's teaching us something. He's teaching his disciples something in the scriptures, and through them he's teaching us something. First, the man is healed in part. He can see in part, and then he's can see fully. I'm convinced that these passages are connected to the one we're going to focus on today because they are speaking specifically to the Jews about the globe that they might know that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was God's revelation to the people of God in part. They saw the plan of redemption but only saw it in part. And that now Christ is saying, I will reveal to you the fullness of of God's plan of redemption in myself. So we know this, we went through Exodus uh, a year ago. The Passover, yes, was about our need for atonement, our need for propitiation, our need, there needing to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins, that we were unclean and God was clean. You go through the whole Torah and we get this. But that was partial revelation. The fullness of the revelation came when the true Lamb of God took away the sins of the world, right? He was the Passover Lamb. And Jesus is telling the disciples this in this miracle. Now, in case you don't 
jive with me. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the writer of Hebrews telling us in the New Testament that Jesus is the fullness of what was in part. Now, I believe the writer of Hebrews is Paul, and you could disagree with that. I'm totally fine with it. I am correct. (laughs) Just kidding. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God speaks through prophets in the Old Testament. This is a Jew speaking to Jews. But in these last days, if you ever wondered when people say, hey, we're in the last days, why do all Christians always think we're in the last days? Well, they have since Jesus was resurrected. You're in the last days since Jesus' ascension. He says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Listen to this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I had to turn that off. Oh, there we go. I have bronchitis. It's been happening. Forgive me. Okay. Jesus is telling them that something's about to shift. It's an earthly and a heavenly shift. They're going to go up on a mountaintop, which represents this kind of Jacob's ladder ethos, this, this imagery of ascension and descension between the heavenlies and the earth. Something's about to be restructured entirely. He's going to reveal it on the mountaintop. Now, another point here, we're just going to quickly breeze past it, but we know that Peter is likely the eyewitness testimony and that made the book of Mark possible, that he's telling Mark exactly what happened and Mark's scribing it down. But I believe here that the Bible's telling us a few hints in the geography and in the language that Peter is going to be a focal point both at the end of chapter 8 and at the beginning of chapter number 9, that his words are important for us to take note of, that maybe there's something that we could gather about ourselves in them. I say this because the miracle of the man who was partially healed and then fully healed happened in Bethsaida, which most most believe was Peter's hometown, which was also called Bethsaida, meaning the meaning of Bethsaida's house of fish, which if you've read your New Testament, you know, how did Peter come to know Christ? On a fishing boat after a long day of catching nothing. And then his eyes are opened to Jesus and he falls down and says, depart from me, Lord, I am a wicked man because I know who you are and you get off my boat. So what happens in this passage? Well, Jesus does this healing, and then he tells Peter, starts fishing for information. He starts saying, hey, what do people say, who do they say that I am? And of course you get, some say Elijah, some say the prophets. Peter, the only one disciple that speaks up to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And in other gospels, we get the testimony that Jesus tells him, flesh and blood has not revealed this, but only your father in heaven, Peter. Now we know that immediately after this, Peter, he sees something clearly, and then he manifest that he clearly doesn't see it in full because he then decides he's going to rebuke Jesus when Jesus says, I have to go to the cross, I have to die and be resurrected. The chief priests are going to be there, they're going to kill me. And Peter says, no way. It says he pulls Jesus aside, which is like you probably shouldn't do, and tells him, no, far be it from me, this is not the plan, this is not what we're going to do. And Jesus, who had just encouraged him for his confession, says, get behind me, Satan. 
for you're not, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You don't, you don't even know what you're talking about, right? And then he goes into this litany of, which is really interesting, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me. Remember, friends, we are on the other side of the cross and these people are not. And Jesus says that they're going to have to take up their cross before he ever goes to the crucifixion. This theme of death and resurrection is woven throughout. And Jesus is saying that the Christians are going to have to also walk through the same death and resurrection that he will endure in Jerusalem. They'll deny themselves. They'll take up their cross, an instrument of death. They'll follow him in life. If they try to save their own lives, they're going to lose it. If, they tried, if they're willing to lose their own lives, they'll save it. This theme of death and resurrection leads us to the transfiguration story. And Jesus seems to be predicting something here because John, or Mark chapter 9 starts out, and it's just verse 1. If you have your Bibles open, you could probably see this. Most new Bibles have subheading subtitles. And you'll see that chapter 9 starts, there's one verse, and then it says transfiguration above it, right? Well, there's a long reason for this, okay? Not, your Bible was not written with chapter and verse. That's, that was put in there later on in order to help you to find the different places. They were written as letters. They were written as narratives. They were written as books. This is telling us that chapter 9, verse number 1, is connected to the dialogue in chapter number 8 at the end. And listen to the line. This is chapter number 9, verse 1. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Now that's a controversial passage because most people when they say the kingdom of God coming in its power, when Jesus says that, they assume that he means in his second coming, right? I need you to understand that is not what he's talking about in this passage. We know this because, and we'll see it later on in Mark 13, he's saying there's going to be a fulfillment that happens in this generation, something's going to happen where the kingdom of God will come in power and the people that are here are going to see it. Now, what we know is that later on, he's going to tell the disciples, don't tell anyone what happened on the mountain of transfiguration until when? Until after the resurrection. Why is that important? That's when it will be time for the kingdom of God to manifest itself in full power. And it will happen, if you remember, when Jesus tells his disciples, go and wait and pray in the upper room and you need to tarry there and then you will be endued with power from on high. The kingdom of God is ushered in at the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and then the kingdom begins to advance. And Jesus is saying, this is going to happen and some of you here won't even die. You'll be alive still when it happens. Now, all of this, all of it, is a prelude to the transfiguration story. We have to keep all of this in our mind as he takes them up onto the mountaintop. Because remember, there's a cosmic reordering that he is anticipating, that he is foretelling, he is prophesying will happen. Something's going to be completely shifted for the Jews, both on earth and in heaven. And the transfiguration story tells us exactly what that will be. And it's all with Old Testament imagery. I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about that. And then at the end, we'll get to some application. So let's start in verse number two. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now that's chalked full. Let's just pass through a few of them, all of this symbolic. Oftentimes we see things like after six days or on the seventh day, something miraculous happens. How many miracles does Jesus do on the Sabbath? This happens often, right? It's like after the six days and then on the seventh or seven days, and these numbers are all purposeful. So after six days on the seventh day, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. It's always these three guys. Why is this pertinent? Well, you're going to see that there's 
three heavenly witnesses and three earthly witnesses to this miracle. Peter, James, and John are the earthly witnesses. Elijah, Moses, and the Father who comes in a cloud and speaks from heaven is the heavenly witness to what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, this witness is proclaiming the truth of Christ and that what, who he is and what he's going to do is going to upend the earthly order and the heavenly order. That's what's happening on the mountain. Anytime you say leading them up on a high mountain, you should start picking up all of these themes we get from the Old Testament. What else happened on a mountain? Oh, I don't know. Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. Abraham went up to sacrifice his son Isaac and God stayed his hand. Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal. I mean, I can keep going, right? A lot of mountain talk. So we should be thinking of that. And then it says, and he was transfigured before them. Now this word, lots of context to it, lots of issues. It's, it's the Greek word where we get uh, the term metamorphosis, okay? There's a transformation of sorts, a change of sorts. Now I want to make this abundantly clear. Jesus is not changing in nature, but changing in form before their eyes. And part of the miracle that we've been seeing set up for us by the Lord Jesus is that the eyes of the disciples are opened to a spiritual truth that has always been true. And it transfigures the Lord Jesus before their eyes. This is a correlation to the new birth. It's a correlation to Christians who see the world one way and then they see Jesus not merely as a fairy tale figure or a good man or a prophet or a good teacher, but they see him as Lord and they're born again. And the change that happens is, yes, in Christ, only insofar as your eyes are open, the scales are removed. He's always been the Lord, but now you see him for who he is. This language is riddled throughout the New Testament when Paul tells us that one day we'll see him face to face. And when we see him as he is, actually this is 1 John, then you'll be made like him when you see him as he is. Meaning that there is still an already not yet for us as Christians that we see Christ in his glory, but we see through a glass. So here he's transfigured. Well, what, is it, what does the Bible tell us this transfiguration looks like? Verse three, his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, why is this significant? You know, is he just looking like Mr. Clean? You know, what, what's the point of this? Every Jew would know the point right off the bat. And that is the entirety of the Torah is chalked full of clean and unclean. Clean and unclean, clean and unclean, purification rites. How do you make yourself pure before you go into the presence of God? Well, there's blood and there's washings. There's blood and there's washings. Okay? These are all typified later for us as Christians. Baptisms are what? Something that is physical that shows the spiritual realities of the cleansing. But the point is not lost on the Jew and it shouldn't be lost on us. We have a uncleanness problem that has to get fixed and be purified. Why? Because God is purely holy. And the most important line in this entire passage is that he was so radiantly white like no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, no one can make the vessels of the temple, the vestments of the priests, the altars clean enough to truly honor God and bring us into his presence. There is no human being on earth that could make us as pure as is God himself. It was all, the entirety of the Old Testament was a type and a shadow to the one that Peter, James, and John are now peering upon, the one who is truly clean, truly pure, the only one that's truly righteous. In other words, 
Jesus is giving a hint that the reordering of things is that the temple system, the sacrificial system, it will not stand. It will be manifested and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He will be the righteousness of God that's extended to us. It keeps going. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Now, we passed that right over, but can you think about that for a second? First of all, how do they know that it's Elijah and Moses? I've always just thought, well, the Lord revealed it to them, you know, but I joked with the nine o'clock. I'm like, I don't know if they have like childhood posters, but these are their heroes. And they go up to pray with Jesus, and he transfigures before them, and he's glorious in all of his kingly glory, and then just so happens to be chatting it out with the two most prominent men in the Old Testament, one of which, the story goes, never died. The other of which, it says he died and God buried him. Those seem like significant dudes. And they are now in a prayer meeting with their, their rabbi and they see them chatting. The Bible tells us what they're chatting about, by the way. They're chatting about Jerusalem. They're chatting about the crucifixion. They're talking about what's to come. Now, why Moses and Elijah? We need to ask this. This is not random. It's not. It's, t- it's telling us something. Remember, this entire uh, scenario should be bringing to our remembrance the Exodus story. It should be bringing to our remembrance who else went up on a mountain and saw God's glory manifested? Oh, Moses. And what happened on that mountain? Oh, the law was given. Law, but the very finger of God was given to Moses. Now we're talking about this great cosmic reordering. And who is the one that's on the mountain with Jesus other than the lawgiver himself? Moses. And what happens? The Bible doesn't tell us that he is as radiantly white as Christ. Christ is something totally unique and different, and they are beside him. In submission to Jesus, the law, Moses representing the law, is in submission to the king. He's the fulfillment. This reordering means that now it's Christ who will be the fulfillment of the law for us. And Elijah will be the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. But there's a layer further with Elijah. Because what's the major story that we get from Elijah if we all usually remember it? It's this. Elijah had a showdown on a mountain too. Remember, he went up on a mountain. And what did he do? He faced down the prophets of Baal. And he said, let's decide which God is the true God. And he told the prophets of Baal that they could worship their God. And if their God would bring down a fire for the sacrifice, then all of Israel could worship Baal. But if, if he prayed and God brought the fire for the sacrifice, then all of Israel must worship the one true God, Yahweh. And of course, you guys know the story, right? The prophets of Baal praying, 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 nothing happens. They start cutting themselves, bloodletting. This is, by the way, is not just extreme, like when your teenager doesn't win a video game and he starts freaking out and cracks the TV. This is like ritualistic carvings, Okay. Nothing happens. Elijah prays. You guys know the story. Just so happens, seven times he prays, and then what? The fire comes down. And then what does he do? He destroys 700 prophets of Baal with his own sword. The prophets of the Old Testament were not like the pastors of today, let's just say. A little bit of a different feel to them. (laughs) Slew all these prophets. So what's happening? The law is fulfilled in Christ. The prophets and their prophecies are fulfilled in Christ and there is a judgment on the false gods of the nations that's happening here. They are not the one true God, but Christ is the king of the nations. All, see, this is happening to the Jews, to the Jewish disciples so that they would know, yeah, all the false gods, and we're gonna get into this in a minute on why this is the case. 
all the false gods of the other nations, they too bow their knee to me. And I will have all the nations, not just Israel. This is happening on the mountain. Now, what does Peter say? Now, let's, before we get too hard on Peter, I want to say, if you really listen to what he says, you and I would have said the same or maybe something way dumber. Okay, I have given Peter a hard time for many things, but you need to recognize that what he's saying here is what any Jew would have said if they were worth their salt or knew anything about the scriptures. Here's what happens. It says, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And he says here what the only thing that he understands about this scenario, because the word tense here in the Greek is tabernacles. He sees the glory of the Lord and then says, let's build a tabernacle. Why? Because that's what Moses did, and he sees Moses. So he says, let's house the presence of the Lord. Now, you may be saying, well, that's, that's not the point of the new covenant. That's the whole message here, but you've got to understand, this is the first class. He's not quite understanding that. So he says, let's build tabernacles and let's stay here. And you might be thinking, well, why, why would they just want to, you know, why would he say something like this? If you were in the presence of God, listen to me, friends, you would want to stay too. If you're in the presence of God like this, you want to set up a tent and you want to stay. We've never experienced something to this level. And if you did, you would soon forget what's even happening at the foot of the mountain. Paul says to be, to live is Christ and to die is gain because it's far better for me to be with Jesus. This is why I have struggles with people who have this, you know, the I died and came back scenarios where they were like, God, just give me one more chance to go back and do more work. Every time we see in the Bible, it's like, no, to be here is like, please let me stay. In fact, the two guys that we know that had this Enoch and Elijah, they didn't come back. They weren't like, man, we got some things to do down there. I got a business to start. No, you're with the Lord. And so what Peter's doing here is what all of us would have said, let us stay here. Now, Mark records something else that I think may have been directly from Peter's mouth. And you can see the humility here, but also something that we might consider whenever we, you know, critique. And he says, he said this because he was terrified and didn't know what to say. Now that's true, isn't it? When you don't know what to say often, you don't hush, you just kind of, let's do, you know, that. This is a serious moment. This is unbelievable. In the Old Testament, when the presence of God showed up, the Israelites would stick their heads in the sand and say, Moses, you talk to them. It's terrifying. You know, they're scared. They don't know what to do. But it's this weird tension of being scared and also wanting to stay. If you've ever, you know, experienced these moments of clarity in your life where it's like there's a holy moment and also a, a deeply satisfying moment. And that's what's happening here. And so he doesn't, he only speaks out of what he knows and that's the tabernacle system. And then it goes on, it says, a cloud overshadows them. And a voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, friends, you remember, remember our Old Testament. You should be picking up on this. Who else came in a cloud in the Old Testament and spoke to the people? This is God, right? The Father is speaking now. And he shows up in a cloud, just like he did in the Exodus, 
and begins to speak. And what does he say? This is my son. That's the heavenly testimony. Elijah, Moses, and the father. This is my son. I'm well pleased in him. And then what? Listen to him. Perk your ears up and listen to him. Now, the last thing I want to point out, this is Luke chapter number 9, verse number 31. This is Luke's description of this portion, okay? And he's going to use a word here uh, that I think is really important to the passage. So he's talking about Elijah and Moses, and he says, they appeared in glory and they spoke with Jesus of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word in the New Testament Greek means exodus. Moses and Elijah show up to talk to Jesus about his exodus, which he will accomplish at Jerusalem. Now we got to put the, connect the dots here, but what are they saying? Jesus is going to head to Jerusalem and he, just like what happened with Moses, will lead the people out of slavery and bondage. He will be the Passover lamb that allows them to come out, but it's not the slavery and the bondage of an empire, Rome, like all the disciples think it will be. It's the slavery to sin and Satan and hell and death and the grave, which is why in the last chapter he said, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's a cosmic and earthly reordering that he will bring into fruition through his what? Death, burial, resurrection. That's what's happening here. And they're talking about it. They're all discussing, hey, you're going to go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. They all know this is what the entirety of the Old Testament was about, was the gospel coming to full. Now, one last thing that I think is important to understand the cosmic nature of this. This conversation with Peter that happened in chapter number eight happened in Caesarea Philippi. And now they went up onto a mountain and there's been uh, really a discussion about which mountain this is on the mountain of transfiguration. Um, early, early uh, traditionalists would say it was Mount Tabor, but that's about seven miles away. Most scholars now, when you read, believe that this is Mount Hermon because Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of Mount Hermon where also massive, massive, massive amounts of pagan worship has happened for millennia. From Baal to Zeus to the god Pan, Gaia, all of the Roman gods. There's temples everywhere at the bottom of this mountain because the ancients believed that Mount Hermon was the Jacob's ladder of sorts. They believed this was the place of the gods. This is where they do their sacrifices. And so the nations would come to this place to do all sorts of horrible things. Jesus shows up to this very place, goes up on that very mountain, and is transfigured in front of his disciples. Why would he do that? I am convinced, and it's my contention, Jesus is picking a cosmic fight here that will lead to his ultimate destruction in Jerusalem. Not his destruction, but his death. That he's standing on their mountain, the false gods, and saying, I'm the Christ. The Father shows up and said, this is the Son of the Most High. Remember, these are the language we've been hearing the demons say. They know who he is. And he's saying, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my gathering, my people on this rock and the gates of hell, the underworld, won't prevail against it. He's going to reverse Eden. He's going to reverse death. And how is he going to do it? He's going to pick a cosmic fight, and when Satan comes in to kill him, he's going to succumb to it. He's going to let him do it, and he's going to defeat him, which is why he tells the disciples in this last paragraph, don't tell anyone until it's over. He's picking a fight. I say this, and you might be saying, oh, you're getting too charismatic on me. Remember who enters into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Christ. 
The Bible is explicit that Satan enters the heart of Judas to betray Christ to the Roman authorities and to the Sanhedrin that he might be crucified. And it's essential that it's the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities so that it represents not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. And they're the ones who take him because the whole world will be saved. All the people will be offered Christ, the very hands that crucified him. Now, then they start coming down the mountain and Jesus has this conversation and they're really perplexed. You got to imagine the whiplash of the disciples at this point. They just, they went through the most extravagant moment that they've ever been through. And it says that they opened their eyes and all of a sudden Moses, Elijah, they're all gone. The cloud's gone. And Jesus looks just like the Nazarene carpenter that he was before. And then Jesus says, all right, let's go on the mountain. And they start walking down the mountain and the Bible tells us, As they were coming down, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They still don't quite understand what he's saying. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? You see, they had a prophecy in Malachi 3 that Elijah would return, and then the Messiah would come. And listen to Jesus' words. He said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things first. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's saying, yeah, the prophets do say this. Now watch this line. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of them. He's telling them that Elijah's already showed up and that he was murdered. So he says, don't be surprised when they do it to me. Now, who is he speaking of? The other gospels tell us directly he's speaking of his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, many are confused about this because they say, didn't John the Baptist explicitly say he wasn't? Elijah? And you need to understand, just like in the Old Testament, the prophets of old do not view themselves as God has viewed them. Moses said, I am a stuttering man and I cannot be your prophet. Elijah does not see himself as, or I'm sorry, John the Baptist doesn't see himself as the spirit of Elijah. He sees himself as a man that's called by God, that's weak and feeble and trying to do what God called him to do. We see in Luke 11, he is doubting at the end of his life if Jesus really is the Christ. He doesn't see himself as God views him or as Jesus declares he is. And Jesus says here, he's already come and they did whatever they pleased to him. The theme of death and resurrection, death and resurrection is constant. Now, those are the theological implications of the passage. And I think they're essential. It's why I went through them because I hope you see this is not just this is not just a story that Jesus went up and you know, decided to become a massive light bulb and then everybody was like, whoa, and then he came down the mountain. This is, it's woven throughout the entirety of the scriptures. What's happening here is essential for us. It's what we should embrace. But what are the practical implications? Well, as the disciples come down off the mountaintop, you should resonate with that. Because if you're a Christian in the room and you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that what also comes with being on top of the mountain is eventually coming down. Our students right now are at summer camp. And if you're a parent in the room or maybe you went to a student ministry or youth ministry, you know what those experiences are. They're fun. They're enjoyable. It's summertime. You're with your friends. But one of the unique things about summer camp is that the Lord is always faithful to meet our kids there. He's faithful to meet young people in this unique way that's now, it's powerful because you're, you're away from your parents for a week and now it's, the, you know, it's almost like a, a rite of passage and the Lord is, is my king. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's just these moments. And 
we have words for it, you know, coming off of a summer camp high, you know, you joke about it now, as an adult maybe, you're like, yeah, I remember I was saving the whole class, you know, and like, you know, football would start and I'd be like, it's time to evangelize. You know, your parents, you come back from summer camp and your parents are wretched Christians because, you know, like, you know, they're all their faults and you're like, hey, the Bible says that you shouldn't yell, why are you yelling at me? And of course, you know, as parents, we're like, shut up, you know, go to your room. But you know what I'm talking about. We even call it a mountaintop experience. This should be familiar to us. When the glorious realities of the revelation of Christ ultimately get met with the brutal realities of the world of death, that's the coming down the mountain experience. Some cynical Christians even look at young Christians and they say, ah, give it time, you'll wise up. And I say, don't do that. They will. But why would you crush, why would you quench something that's burning brightly? That's cynical. But inevitably, when you get down at the foot of the mountain, you find that it's so much less like what was happening up top. Could you imagine the disciples, like they had just seen everything in technicolor and they're just coming back back down in black and white? You know, they just, they're coming back down and everything that just experienced up there, they're probably questioning, was that real? And this should cause us to reminisce. I want to say this before I talk about what we should do with that. If you're a Christian in the room, or let me say this, Christian or non-Christian alike, this experience should cause you to reminisce. When you hear the transfiguration story, something in your heart should leap and say, that's what it was like, not exactly with the dramatics, not exactly with the cloud hovering over you, but seeing Christ for who he is for the first time, that's called being born again. We should reminisce in this. And if you're a Christian, I would say, if you don't have that, it's likely because the enemy has so deadened you to your past and has so disconnected you from that moment that he makes you think that wasn't real. And that's the battle these disciples have to fight now. Because it, most assuredly, if you are in Christ, this happened to you where you saw Christ for who he was, not merely for what people had said about him. That's what the transfiguration experience is. Now, coming down the mountain is how do we hold it, cling to it, as we're met with the realities of life. Because this is where we stand, just like Peter, James, and John. But I want to encourage you this morning, I want to say this. If you're there, you're in good company. The Old Testament is chocked full of stories, not merely so that we can have picture books to read our children, but so that you and I, as children of God, can be reminded of our spiritual heritage and our spiritual family. You may have a very dysfunctional human family, but if you are in Christ, you have a wonderful heritage in the Lord. That's what the Old Testament's chocked full of. It's what Hebrews 11's all about. Those are your fathers and mothers. And the Old Testament tells us a lot of stories about mountaintops. I just want to remind you of a few. Moses experiences the glory of God on the mountain of Sinai. He is hidden in the cleft of the rock and God shields him as he sees his back. It's a wonderful moment. But remember what happens when he comes down? <laughs> what is he met with? All of his friends, all of his nation, his own brother dancing around an idol as he has just experienced the majesty of God. Elijah had to come down from the mountain after the prophets of Baal. And what happens? The queen Jezebel promised that she would kill him or she herself would die. What about Abraham? Genesis 22, 
Abraham goes on the mountain with his own son whom God told him to sacrifice. God told him that you need to go and sacrifice your son, your one and only son to me. And he goes up the mountain and he's just trusting God. God's going to be faithful. God will preserve my son. And he rears his hand back and an angel of the Lord stays his hand and says, I'll provide myself a lamb. Abraham, Isaac is the child of promise. And you gotta imagine this moment as he tears up and he hugs his son and he comes down the mountain. You know what Genesis 23 says? I mean, immediately after, Sarah died. From mountaintop to the bottom. And I could go on, I could keep going on with this. Jacob wrestles with God face to face. In the break of the morning, God touches his hip and blesses him and changes his name. But he immediately has to go across the river and face up with Esau. Joseph is given a vision and a coat of many colors, and immediately he's sold into slavery by his brothers. David defeats Goliath and almost immediately is kicked out of the kingdom, exiled by the very king that he served. Everyone has to come down the mountain. It's the rule, not the exception. And friends, when we see Jesus for who he is, it lifts you to heights that you could never bring yourself to, But when you come down the mountain, eventually, you are met with the rot that sin has brought. You are met with the decay of a fallen world. We're like people who've seen a great light, but we live in a world of darkness. We're we're these people who have experienced grace, and yet we live in a world of malice and judgment. We've experienced the true, purest form of love from God, and yet we live in a world of indifference and hatred. Coming down the mountain hurts. But this passage gives us hope. It gives us hope and it gives us direction. The first and most essential thing for us is that you, if you're a human being, the most essential thing is that you see Jesus as he truly is, that you have a Mount of Transfiguration experience. That's the most important thing in your life. If you want to write down your goals for your children, top 10, one through 10 should be that they see Jesus and know him, treasure him and cling to him for who he really is. But 1A is that we must cling to the vision of Christ that we have even whenever we're in the valley of the shadow of death. That we have to cling to that same God-oriented vision. The entirety of the New Testament is filled with admonitions like Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Don't set your mind on the things that are earthly. Why do they keep saying that? Because if your eyes are set to the Christ who's been resurrected, then and only then can you endure walking through the valley of dry bones, the earth that you're in full of death. We are to live a life marked by a vision of not just the crucified, but the resurrected and ascended and ruling and reigning Christ. And we are to, as the father told the disciples, to listen to the voice of Jesus and follow him wherever he will go. The world has a way of deadening your senses, blinding us, trying to stop up our ears. I want you to hear this, this cosmic reordering. Satan, the Bible tells us in Colossians, was disarmed at the cross. He was defanged. That now his greatest and most powerful weapon against you is to blind you, deafen you, and to keep you from seeing the glory of Christ. I want to end by reading this from 2 Corinthians 4. In case you don't believe me, this is directly from the words of Paul. He says this, even if our gospel is veiled, covered, 
It's only veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What does he blind them from? This is his weapon to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the transfiguration. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's our gospel. With ourselves as servants for Jesus, Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give. What does he give? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in who? In the face of Jesus Christ. That is Old Testament mosaic imagery. Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is so glorious he has to put a veil on. But Jesus is not a reflection of God's glory. He is God's glory and we with unveiled face behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the new birth. And the enemy's job is to deaden us from this. And so friends, I wanna encourage you in this way. If you've come down the mountain, or maybe we've been, because there's valleys and peaks, aren't there? Sometimes we have these mountain experiences again and again, and they're wonderful. But we always have to come back down the mountain. This morning, my prayer for you is this, that we would hold to that which is eternal, not temporal. Maybe it's best if I just say it in the words of Paul. This is the last bit here. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, fleeting, passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They're forever. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that your gospel is an eternal gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your glory knows no bounds, has no end. That the power and the arm of your kingdom will continue forever and ever and ever. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you desire for us to know you in this way. And so I do ask that everyone under the sound of my voice, would you help us open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to feel that we might experience even in an analogous way what Peter, James, and John experienced because God, we do long to have that moment. But nonetheless, when we come down the mountain, God, keep our eyes set on where you're seated in heavenly places. Give us that which we do not have. And God, help us now to declare the good news that the disciples were prohibited from declaring that you're alive. We pray it in Jesus' name.